You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, I want to begin this morning by making some observations and kind of setting the stage. Um, One way to set the stage would have been to walk outside last night and see the storms of destruction as they passed us by, and I'll refer to that a little bit later. But here what I want to do is uh, look a little bit at the, the context and the structure and some of the themes, and then bring those together to see what the Lord might have for us this morning. And so one of the first questions we might ask is, where was this psalm written? You know, you noticed at the beginning of a lot of these psalms, there's a little superscript that kind of identifies particular moments in David's life when this was written. And this one, of course, is written in a cave. Well, when? Well, when David fled from King Saul. Which time? (laughs) Because David hid in a cave from King Saul a bunch of times. In fact, if you read through the book of Samuel, you'll, you'll be shocked at how often David is in a cave or David is in a wilderness. And there's a lot of wildernesses that David frequents. Now, the most likely candidate here, so first, this is 1 Samuel 22, 23, 24, 25, that sort of area. And the most likely time here is immediately after David had left Gath. In fact, that may be why this psalm is placed where it is. 1 Samuel 21 describes David's time in Gath among the Philistines, and that's likely when he wrote Psalm 56 that we looked at last week. And so then... Uh, the next Psalm, 56 to 57, the next chapter, 1 Samuel 21 to 1 Samuel 22, it begins this way. So David departed from there, Gath, Philistines, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there was with him about 400 men. So the first thing to note about this psalm is that it was written from a cave when David is fleeing from the king that he had faithfully served. That's context. Structure. How is this organized? I always find this one of the more fascinating things about studying the Bible is when you begin to see that they organize things in kind of unusual ways, ways that differ from our typical. Uh, but this psalm seems to be structured like a chiasm. We've probably talked about those before. It's a literary structure that, that you could think of as kind of like steps up a mountain. So the, the first part of the, the first step and the last step kind of match up, and then the second step and the second to last step, and then the third step and the third to last step, and then there's a peak. So you kind of walk up the mountain, and then you walk down the mountain as you move through the psalm. That's one way to think about a chiasm. Another way, this is Pastor Jonathan's way of thinking about chiasms, is like a sandwich, okay? So you've got the bun and the bun, and then you move in, and let's say you got some veggies, and so you've got some lettuce and maybe some pickles. And then you move in from there and you got some cheese, but we're gonna do double cheese because we're in Minnesota. And then right in the middle, you got the meat, okay? So you, you work in and that's a chiasm, okay? And the nice thing about chiasms, they allow you to do two things. On the one hand, they allow you to move up, and then they allow you to move forward. So you're moving up to kind of a a point, a pinnacle, a climax, but then you're not done. You actually can finish uh, and and move beyond from where you started. And so if you look at this passage here, Psalm 57, we see, so I'm going to label these as, uh, I'm going to do Pastor Jonathan's. So we got bun number one, 57.1. It's a plea for mercy as David seeks refuge in God. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. 
Then in verse two and three, we hear David's cry for help to the sovereign God. And it, there's with confidence that God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness from heaven. So notice there in verse uh, three, he will send from heaven and save me. He'll put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. So now let's bun to veggies. Now we're moving to cheese. Verse four, a description of David's enemies. Here they are lions, they are fiery beasts. Their teeth and tongue are their main weapons. In other words, the way that David's enemies do violence to him is through their words. How do they trample? How do they attack? How do they wreck him? It's with their words. And this is likely a reference to King Saul and to his evil counselors, the counselors that surround him because Saul at this time in his life is like enraged with jealousy. And he's got counselors around him who feed that jealousy that David is a threat. David wants the kingdom. David is coming after him and so he better go after David first. And so these are the men whispering in Saul's ear. You can think about maybe Lord of the Rings. You got the worm tongue guy who's in the, the king's ear. That's the kind of situation. Their weapons, their weapons, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. And so that's cheese number one. Now we move to the meat right there, 57.5, a call for God to be exalted above the heavens and for his glory to extend to the whole earth. We then start coming back down the mountain. Cheese number two, verse six, is back to David's enemies. So notice that, right? Verse four and verse six are both focused on David's enemies. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they've fallen into it themselves. And what do we see next? Well, verses seven to 10, we're back here, the pickles. David's response to God's deliverance, a steadfast heart, gratitude, and a song. And then if you remember, if you remember back with when we were at the, the first veggies with lettuce, God sent his steadfast love and his faithfulness from heaven here on the corresponding part in, in um, this passage, verse 10, David sings of God's steadfast love and faithfulness, which reaches to the heaven. So you see how those match, right? You got steadfast love and faithfulness from the heavens, steadfast love and faithfulness to the heavens, those fit. And then of course we end up more or less where we started. Now, here's what's interesting. Is it bun or is it meat? And it could be both, right? So verse 11, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. On the one hand, this is the bookend and it matches, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. So it matches that. It's this exhortation to God. One is be merciful and one is be exalted. But here, it also matches the middle. It's a repetition word for word of verse five. And so that's the structure. You walk up it, and so you move from this request, this plea, to steadfast love and faithfulness in the heavens, to David's enemies, up to the exaltation, back to David's enemies, back to the steadfast love from the heavens, and then concluding with be exalted above the heavens. That's the structure of the psalm. And I wonder if you noticed one of the repeated themes over and over in this Psalms, and it's this, it's the heavens. Do you notice how frequently David here alludes to the heavens? So verse three, God will send from heaven and save me. Verse five, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Verse 10, your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. And then finally, verse 11, be exalted again, O God, above the heavens. So here's this thing focused on the heavens. And in the Bible, the heaven or the heavens, it's the same word, can refer kind of to one of two realities, 
Okay, on the one hand, it can refer to kind of the physical heavens, like what we, like sky and outer space, okay? The heavens can refer to that. The heavens are above us. They stretch from horizon to horizon. The stars are set in them. The sun moves across it. The clouds are on the face of it. That's the heavens, and you see them every day. But on the other hand, the heavens can also refer to the place where God and the angels dwell. This place is normally invisible to human sight. But at various times in the Bible, especially with prophets, God sort of rips back the veil that separates his dwelling place from our normal everyday reality and he reveals heavenly realities to the prophets. And so if you think about a book like Revelation, where the apostle John is given a vision and what's he seeing into? It's the heavens, it's heaven, it's where God dwells. And, and, it's, and it's sort of like, it, it may be up, we could think of it up like that, but it's really, it could be right here because the prophet can just have the veil ripped back and see it, okay? So the Bible uses this same word, heavens, to refer both to the sky and to God's dwelling. And this Psalm refers to both, you see them. God sends from heaven, that is from where he dwells, from where he is in order to save us. That's the invisible heavenly realm. And then his steadfast love reaches to the heavens, his faithfulness to the clouds. That's a reference to the sky. And then the connection between these two though, I believe is a really important one. And it goes all the way back to Genesis one. Okay, so I know there are a lot of different uh, debates and takes about Genesis 1. I'm just about to describe one that I think is really compelling, okay? So you don't have to turn to Genesis 1 unless you want to, but in Genesis 1-1, you remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The next verse says, now the earth was formless and void and the darkness was over the face of the deep. Now here's what's interesting about that, right? We move from heavens and earth to like zoom in on the earth, but it's not the earth as we know it, it's sort of this unformed, unfilled, dark, watery sort of mass of stuff. But the heavens have already been created. So I think what the text is telling us there is that God, when he created, created sort of like his own dwelling place, the place where he and maybe the angels will dwell all at once, instantaneous. And then he also created this other thing called the earth. And now Genesis 1 is about the forming, the filling, the shaping, the creation, the the getting ready of that place for human dwelling. Does that make sense? So first you have the heavens, the place where God dwells. God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth wasn't done yet. And then Genesis 1, 3, day one, let there be light, and there was light. And he separates the evening and the morning, day and night. And then day two, this is significant, day two God says, Let there be an expanse separating the waters from the waters. And so it's sort of like God stretches out this expanse that separates waters below from waters above. And that expanse he calls heavens, which is the same word that he'd use back in verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens, his own dwelling place. Does that make sense? So right there in Genesis 1-1, I think we get both references, the physical heavens and the sky, and then God's own dwelling. And then that's, that thing that he stretches out, if we continue in Genesis 1, we see that's where God places the lights. So in day four is when he puts the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and all of the starry hosts, he sort of sets them in the heavens like jewels in this big expanse that separates the waters 
from the waters. And so what's significant about all of this is that expanse that God stretched out is named after God's dwelling. In other words, the physical heavens are named after the heavenly heavens. And these physical heavens then can like represent and point us to and remind us of the heaven of heavens, the heavenly, the spiritual heavens. The physical heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19 verse one. And that includes, when you think about how does it point to it? Well, it includes the sun as it moves across the sky in triumphant joy. It includes the moon as it waxes and wanes and gives light to the night. It includes the stars as they shine as those brilliant jewels set in the heavens. The clouds that are filled with rain and the rumble of thunder and the fantastic lightning storms like we had last night. These are the heavens that point to the heaven of heavens. These are the heavens that that telescope, that new one, right? The James Webb telescope that sees farther than Hubble, that they just got these images back this summer and it's been sending back these images that astound us with like these colorful galaxies and crazy star formations and swirling nebulae and all of this. It's, it's this combination of like intricate and unbelievable order and yet profound mystery. Like we don't know how that's possible. And I've, I already saw an article that's like basically all the things that we thought about the formation of the universe is basically has to be wrong because what these pictures are showing us just reminds us of how little we know. So these are the heavens. When we think about the physical heavens, these heavens amaze our soul as we think about standing in one place, here we are, planet Earth, and you can move out in any direction, just up. Just move in any direction and you can travel for trillions and trillions of miles, billions and billions of light years and never come to the end. And you can do the math, right? Like I just went and looked, I was like, how big is the universe? Like what do they say now? And I'm, and I'm like, do they, do they even know? And they're like, the known universe, and I'm like, ah, that word's important. The known universe is apparently like 93 billion light years in diameter, okay? So 93 billion light years in diameter. So light, it's light years of how fast, how far a, that light can travel, the fastest thing that we know, light travels that far in a year, and it's 93 billion of those. And like, I can do the math. Wait, I can't do the math, but some of you can probably do the math. We can count and we can do the sums, but our imaginations, when we try to talk about billions and trillions and quadrillions and light years, our imaginations just say, done, I quit. Not doing it. Wake me up later. These heavens that make our imaginations falter at such distance, that, that give meaning to the word unfathomable and show such depth and dim it, distance that is an image of God. Because don't miss what David says in the Psalm, right? Our God is exalted above the heavens. Like you can do all the math, you can have your imagination come to the end and you can go, yeah, but where's God? Farther, go as far as you can. Is he there? Nope, still farther. The heavens are so deep and they land on our imaginations with such weight and gravity that I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but they can kind of make you feel that you are adrift on an infinite sea. Like an infinite sea, like water in all directions, no shore possible. 
or we're surrounded by roads leading in all directions, but ultimately leading nowhere. There's no destination at the end. The heavens are so nearly infinite, so majestic and massive in their depth and their distance that they give to our minds a likeness of the abyss of God's own being. Like God's own being is the sort of thing that if you were to drop down your thoughts forever, like if you were to try to drop your thought down forever, you'll never get an echo back. That's what, that's what unfathomable means, right? You know, fathoming, you go and you drop the line down to try to find the bottom of the ocean. And it's like, drop the line down and when it hits the bottom, you'll know it, it'll make a little move or something. Or it's like, we, now we, we're much more advanced, right? So we have echolocation, right? We send a sound and we want it to hit the wall and bounce back. So yell, right? Sorry. Yell, hit, hit the sound, let it come back. It's like, it'll never come back. No echo is gonna return. As great as the heavens are, God himself is greater. And therefore be exalted, O God, above the heavens. That's the theme. Now I wanna bring those three together. So David is writing this Psalm in a cave. And caves can be good, okay? We don't don't wanna knock caves too much. I'm about to knock caves, but caves can be pretty good. Like last night, if you were out, like if you went to the state fair and got caught in that, you'd be like, if there's a cave, I'm in. I'll, I'll go ahead, I'll just take the cave, okay? So when a storm of destruction passes by, it's good to seek refuge in a cave. But a cave is not a castle, it's not a palace. And so David being in this cave upends his expectations. He's not where he expected to be. Young son of Jesse, handsome, zealous, full of courage, slayer of lions and bears, David the giant killer, anointed by the Lord's prophet to be king over God's people. David the musician, anointed, uh, invited into the king's house to soothe the mind of a troubled king. This is David, the covenant brother of the crown prince, Jonathan. Those are the expectations that have been built and now he's an outlaw on the run, pretending to be crazy to protect himself from foreign kings surrounded by the dregs of Israel, the distressed, the debtors, the embittered. That's who David has called into his orbit. That's not what he expected. He's in a cave and the walls are closing in. He's in a cave and he remembers the heavens. He's in a cave and he sings to the God who is exalted above the heavens. So let's think more about that cave heavens juxtaposition for a minute. Plato, the philosopher, in his Republic has this allegory of the cave, okay? And he says like this, he says, basically human beings are like prisoners trapped deep in a dark cave, all chained up. And I'll just try to use this, pretend this is our cave and it would be like you're chained up and I would be chained right here facing that way, but like down, okay? So I couldn't see back that way. Right? I'm chained facing that wall. And uh, we're looking at that far wall and behind us toward the mouth of the cave, there's a fire burning. And between the fire and this wall is Pastor Jonathan and he's got some stuff that he's moving in front of the fire that's casting its shadow on the wall. 
that make sense? So all I know, I don't actually know what he has. I just see shadows on the wall. And that's all of us just lined up here with this wall, with the light going on the wall. And here's what, and here's what Plato says what human beings are. Human beings are chained to this wall and we're fighting over what the shadows are. We're competing over who's got the coolest shadow or that's my shadow or, you know, it's all about the shadows and we're just like tearing each other down, trying to get, be one up on who's the best shadow seer, all of that kind of stuff. That's the glory that we seek as we're chained to a wall in a cave with fire. We don't even know anything except shadows. And then Plato says what a philosopher is, the philosopher is the guy who says, you know what, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> and the philosopher says, I'm done fighting over the shadows. I want to go see what's back there. And so he breaks free of the chains and he turns around and he goes out and he sees not only Pastor Jonathan with his little sock puppets, but he goes past and he sees the, the, the fire and he says, I'm not even going to be content with the fire. I'm getting out of the cave. And he goes out in the cave, out of the cave. And then it's like brilliant light. The sun is in the sky. And he's like, I had no idea that this is what reality is. I thought reality was just the shadows on the wall. And then the philosopher, according to Plato, is supposed to go back in and try to convince other people to get out of the cave. Sort of like the Socratic Great Commission. What's significant, though, is that the, the thing that Plato leads to, the thing that is the substance, the thing that is the thing, the real thing, in the allegory is the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars in the sky. Those are pictures or images of the glory and majesty of truth and goodness and beauty. For Plato, the heavens are an image of ultimate ideas, ultimate forms, true, good, and beautiful that lie behind all created reality. That's caves in the heavens. Or maybe consider another story about caves and heavens. You remember the silver chair, Lewis's fourth chronicle. Jill Pohl, Eustace Scrub, sent out on a quest. They got Puddle Glum the Marsh Wiggle as their sidekick and guide. They're trying to find the lost prince, really. In. Their journey takes them up to the land of the giants. They get chased into a cave and they fall down a crack and they go down, 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 deep underground where they are captured by really sullen, sarcastic gnomes who constantly say, many sink down, but few return to the sunlit lands, okay? So deep underground, in a massive cave, these three heroes eventually find the lost prince, and they deliver him from an enchanted chair, and they're preparing to make their escape, and then the witch comes back, the green witch who'd ensnared him. She'd enchanted the prince. She returns, and really and says, we're getting out of here. I'm a prince of Narnia. These are my friends, and we're going. And at that moment, the witch goes, she lights a fire of this like sweet smelling incense. She begins to play enchanted music on her harp and then she starts to try to enchant them again. And here's the substance of the enchantment, just listen. Here's what the witch says in the story. She says, this cave, that's all there is. It's all cave all the way down. No Narnia? What's Narnia? That's a funny word. There's no Narnia. There's no overworld, did you say? No, that doesn't, that's not a thing. It's not even a thing. Narnia, that's just a dream. That's just make-believe. The witch says, there never was any world but mine. And the children repeat, there never was any world but yours. Now at this moment, at this moment, Puddleglum kind of fights through and listen to what Puddleglum says. I don't know rightly what you all mean by a world, he said, talking like a man who hasn't enough air, but you can play that fiddle till your fingers drop off and still won't make me forget Narnia and the whole overworld too. 
We'll never see it again, I shouldn't wonder. You may have blotted it out and turned it dark like this for all I know, nothing more likely. But I, but I know I was there once. I've seen the sky full of stars. I've seen the sun coming up out of the sea of a morning and sinking behind the mountains at night. And I've seen him up in the midday sky when I couldn't look at him for brightness. In other words, the thing that Puddleglum remembers in the cave that fights him through is he remembers the heavens. He remembers the sun and the moon and the stars. And it has a rousing effect on the others, but which isn't through. And she's like, son, t- tell me about, what's the, what does that word mean? And they're like, well, look, the sun is kind of like, see these lights, these lights. So the sun's like a lamp, light that hangs, but like it hangs from the sky. And then she's like, what's that hanging? Hangs from what? Hangs in the sky, hangs from what? And then they're like, I don't know how to answer that. And then she explains away the sun. The sun too is just a dream copied from the lamp. The lamp is the real thing. The sun is just a fairy tale. And so the enchantment now is nearing its full effect and the four of them are almost asleep, almost completely under the spell. And then Jill fights through and she says, well, wait, there's Aslan. And the witch goes to work on Aslan and she says, what is Aslan? They're like, he's a great lion. What in the world is a lion? And then here's what Eustace says. Well, a lion is a little bit, but only a little bit, mind you, like a huge cat with a mane. At least it's not like a horse's mane, you know. It's more like a judge's wig and it's yellow and it's really strong. Got the picture? You know what a lion is now? And the witch just shakes her head. She says, I see, she said, that we should do no better with your lion, as you call it, than with your son. You've seen lamps, listen, and so you imagined a bigger and better lamp and you called it the sun. You've seen cats and now you want a bigger and better cat and it's to be called a lion. Well, that's a pretty make-believe. Though to say truth, it would suit you all better if you were younger. (laughs) And look how you can put nothing into your make-believe without copying it from the real world, this world of mine, which is the only world. There's nothing but the cave. But even you children are too old for such play. And as for you, my Lord Prince, you are a man full grown. Fie upon you. Are you not ashamed of such toys? Come, all of you, put away these childish tricks. I have worked for you all in the real world. Cave is all there is. There's no Narnia, no overworld, no sky, no sun, no Aslan, and now to bed all, and let's begin a wiser life tomorrow. But first to bed, to sleep, deep sleep, soft pillows, sleep without these foolish dreams. You see what Lewis is doing with this witch, right? The modern world is a cave, and we're all in danger of following under its spell under its dark enchantment. We're tempted to believe that the physical world is the only world and that the only things that are real are material things, measurable things, mathematically modelable things that we can analyze with our science, that we can mold and shape like Plato, the other kind. Puns are fun. Spiritual things in the modern world like the soul, or God or his dwelling in the heavens are just make-believe. They're projections of our desires that enable us to cope with the harshness of reality. So you have an earthly father and you want someone to protect you from storms of destruction that might threaten you on every side or to deliver you from your enemies who are laying traps for you, from the lions that surround you. And so what do you do? You project your earthly father into the sky, imagine a bigger and better father, and you call him God. That's the modern enchantment. So what does Lewis do? How does he resolve it? 
Well, here's Puddleglum again. In this brave acts of defiance, finally Puddleglum fights through. He goes over to that fire that's been burning all that incense, and he puts his foot in it, which fills the room with the foul smell of burnt marsh wiggle. And that pain, the pain gives him a moment of perfect clarity. No more foggy mind. And here's what he says. One word, ma'am. One word. All you've been saying is quite right. I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always likes to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it. So I won't deny any of what you said. But there's one thing more to be said, even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can even if there isn't any Narnia. So thanking you kindly for our supper, if these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, we're leaving your court at once and setting out in the dark to spend our lives looking for overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that's small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say. What is this? This is Puddleglum's steadfast, defiant faith. He remembers in the dark what he knew in the light. He has eternity in his heart, a longing for something more than this cave could supply. And he knows that if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most likely explanation is I was made for another world. And so he stands by the play world that he's been in, the spiritual world, which he's seen with his own eyes, the heavenly world. He's on Aslan's side, come hell or high water. And this connects Puddleglum to David in the cave. In the cave, David remembers the heavens. He remembers that the sun rises every day and the stars come out every night. They are faithful, firm, steadfast, and they are images of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. And in meditating on God's steadfast love, which is great to the heavens, and on his faithfulness, which is mighty to the cloud, David himself becomes steadfast. He sees the purposes of God in the heavens, in the storms that bring rains that fall to water the thirsty ground, and he knows God has purposes for the storms of destruction in my life too. God has purposes for me, and they include storms. That's part of the purposes. But God is his refuge in the midst of those storms and shelters him from that destruction and from the enemies that's proud. That's why David says, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. Listen to the way that word steadfast shows up another place, Psalm 112. Listen to Psalm 112. This is the blessing on the righteous man who fears the Lord and finds great delight in his commandments on the man who is on Aslan's side and seeks to live like an Arnian. Okay, That's, this is the blessing on that guy. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. 
So the man who trusts in the Lord is steadfast, firm, immovable, established, prepared, faithful, strong, resilient, because he meditates on the God who is firm, immovable, established, steadfast, strong, and full of love and faithfulness. So let me close here with three brief encouragements for you. Because some of you are in a cave and you feel like the walls are closing in. This is not the life that you expected. There are storms of destruction passing by. Maybe you even have adversaries and opponents who are seeking to trample you, who are plotting your downfall in their pit. And so what does Psalm 57 say to you? Well, the last few weeks, Pastor Jonathan and Pastor Kenny have both told us, preach the gospel to yourself. It's one of the lessons of these Psalms is preach to yourself. I wanna spin that a little bit. Don't just preach, sing. Sing the gospel to yourself. In the cave, in the darkness, sing of God's faithfulness until the sun comes up. Wake the dawn with your singing. He's in the cave. And he says, I will sing until the sun comes up. I will awake the dawn. Let's go fingers, let's go harp, let's go lyre. We're gonna wake up the sun. It's coming again, I believe it. Second, get out of your head. You gotta get out of your head. Don't get lost in the maze of your own mind. Don't lean on your own understandings. Look to the heavens, consider the birds, the ones that have feathers and give an image of the God who shelters us beneath the shadow of his wings. So consider, get out of your head and consider God's purposes just for a minute. Consider God's cosmic purposes as he reveals himself in the infinitude of space and the majesty of the heavens and the steadfastness of the sun. He is exalted above the heavens. Consider God's global purposes as his glory covers the whole earth. Give thanks to him among the peoples and praise him among the nations. One of the best ways to break out of the cave of your mind that the walls are closing in is to meditate on the greatness of God's purposes in the world. It's bigger than you. But third, it includes you. Don't forget God's purposes for you. He fulfills his purposes for me. The greatness of the cosmos and the glory of his mission is to give you a vision of his greatness, like the vastness of the universe is meant to blow your mind, stretch them to the breaking points, and then to go, these are just the fringes of his ways. And so if God is able to govern and guide all of reality, including those far off nebulae that that telescope is sending back, then surely he is big enough to care for me. All of him is everywhere. And he has purposes for everything, including you. He is the God who fulfills his purposes for you. And so third, don't just remember his cosmic purposes, his global purposes, and his personal purposes. Remember him. Cry out to him. He is God most high, sovereign, governing all things, including those storms. He is protective, hiding you beneath his wings. He is faithful, steadfast, full of covenant love, filling his cosmos from one corner to the other. 
all 93 billion light years. Which brings us to the table. The psalm began with a plea, be merciful to me, O God, and it ends with a song of triumph, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Those go together, it's part of the bun. Our God exalts himself in showing mercy to us. Most high, most merciful. That's what this table is. Here is where God the Most High, out of his steadfast love and faithfulness, reminds us of his great humiliation when he made himself nothing and took the form of a servant. Being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And that humiliation was his triumph, same movement, exalted, name above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in the heavens and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Most high, most merciful in the person of Jesus, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. I'm gonna invite the pastors to come. As they do, we'll distribute the bread. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.